Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors who has the opportunity to serve here at Ridge Church. And specifically, I get to serve as a pastor of youth and young adults. We're glad you're here with us today, wherever you're joining us from as we carry on in our series in the Gospel of John. Now, I was really, really excited when Pastor Jonathan told us we'd be going through the Gospel of John, not only because I think it's an amazing book of the Bible, but because it connects really deeply with what we do in our youth ministry. Actually, if a student comes to our youth ministry for the first time and doesn't have a Bible, one of the first things we're able to give them is we have these small little Gospels of John. And the reason why we have that specific book of the Bible to give out to students or people who have never heard the gospel before, never encountered Jesus before, is because really the invitation of the gospel of John is the same thing that we've titled this series, Come and See. Because that is really the heart of the author. See, John was the one who described himself as the one who Jesus loved. And even amongst the other gospel writers, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John kind of feels different. He, he has a bit of a different tone, a bit of a different style, a bit of a different way of writing what he writes. He seems to have a particularly gentle heart. The book of John isn't story after story after story after story. If you look at the book of Mark, it's like action-packed. But, but the gospel of John is filled with slow stories. Stories where we see Jesus interact with specific people, whether that's a Pharisee named Nicodemus or a woman at a well or whoever else it may be. Many people, including a few that I know, have come to faith in Christ reading the gospel of John and seeing what Jesus is like. Why? Because when we see how someone interacts with others, we see what they are really like. I was chatting recently with a, a group of friends all about kind of personality tests and, and this, that, and the other thing, and, and why do we do them, and are they helpful, and this kind of thing. Um, and, and someone made a really great point where they said, you know, the reality is when we fill out those personal personality test, whether it's Enneagram or Berkman or, or whatever it may be, what we tend to do, if we're honest with ourselves, is we fill those little surveys out where we answer, are you good at this? Are you bad at this? Do people follow you? Are you an influencer? Whatever it may be. We, we fill them out and we tend to fill them out as we wish we were, not as we actually are. And so what we get actually in the gospel of John is not just Jesus describing himself, but how other people interacted with him. And just like a personality test where actually you might get a more accurate answer if you got your spouse or your close friends or your coworkers to fill out that assessment for you. We see in the Gospel of John a picture of who Jesus is, not just in his own words, but in the life and actions of those around him. And John gives us that Jesus, the gentle and lowly king the one who eats with sinners, who invites disgraced tax collectors to join the team, the God who cares for the hurting, the sick, the poor, the lowly, and the prostitute, the one who operates with tenderness and kindness everywhere he goes. That is who we see Jesus as in the book of John. And so as we understand Jesus in this way, as we look at him, as we have this picture of him in our mind, let's read together from John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember, he's coming from the wedding where he's just performed his first miracle. 
In the temple, when he arrived, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered in that moment that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, now, if we read that and we separate it out from our presuppositions about that story, if we already know it, something feels a little bit out of place here, doesn't it? Like this doesn't seem to line up with, with the character or the kind of operational way in which Jesus moves. John 13 to 25, which we're looking at today, which we also see stories of across all four gospels, it feels a little bit out of place. The so-called cleansing of the temple it is not the only time we see Jesus get angry, but what it is, is it's the only time we see Jesus get violent. It's the only time we see him almost seem to throw a tantrum, get really angry. He's got a whip that he's created. He's grabbed ropes. He's put it together. He's literally flipping over tables. It said he's spread the animals and the money changers all over the place. Everything's chaotic. He's pushing people out. In other accounts of this story, we see that he calls this a den of thieves. He's calling people out. He's doing all these things that don't really seem to line up with our picture of the quiet, gentle Jesus. And why is this? What is happening here? Now, there may be some of you listening right now who hear this and go, oh, I like this, Jesus. I like the angry, flip a table, get mad, start yelling, build a whip, let the people know what's what. But what you need to know and what you need to hear just before we carry on is that the fullness of the Bible and particularly the New Testament calls us as Christians and followers of Jesus to be a people of nonviolence. This is not the typical way in which Jesus acts. We cannot go around having tantrums, getting angry, and flipping over tables in our lives and our relationships and say, well, Jesus had to flip tables sometimes. Well, Jesus got angry when he walked into the temple. This is a specific story in a specific time for a specific purpose. This story is not permission for you to be unkind and cruel. Jesus flipped tables so I can too is a lazy and immature interpretation of scripture that oftentimes can be used to excuse your own anger issues and the way you treat other people. And so if that is the case, if this is not the, the regular mode of how Jesus operates, if this is not the typical mode of how Jesus operates, this, this act of seeming violence, we have to ask, Why? Why does Jesus do this? Why is this, who the one we believe has no sin in him, why is this happening? And why at the temple? Why in Jerusalem? Why at the Passover? Why in this moment, in this time, at this place? What is it about right now that seems to push Jesus over the edge? Well, first off, we have to remember what the temple is. See, many of us will read temple when we read the gospel accounts. We'll, we'll read that word and we'll essentially substitute the word church, right? Oh, the temple, a religious building, 
right? Just like the one we have here and we've done lots to make it beautiful and all these things. Or you think about what's a synagogue or a cathedral or a church building or a mega church building, whatever it might be, we take that word temple and we just kind of substitute our meaning onto it. It might be a big, special temple. It might be the kind of central temple. It might be the biggest temple around with the most people going to it. But, but at the end of the day, a temple is a temple, right? Well, no, that's not how it worked in the Jewish religious practice. See, two things happen at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that could happen nowhere else based on the sacrificial system that God had set up in the Old Testament, which if you're wondering more about that, go back, listen to our series that we did in the book of Leviticus over the course of the summer. Now, two things happened here that could not happen anywhere else. One, the temple was the only place that you could personally encounter God. See, from the Old Testament all the way through to the time of Jesus, the place where God was, was the temple. The place where God operated, the place where you could meet God, was the temple. You could see signs of God. You could see the beauty of God. You could see the work of God. God could work outside the temple and do whatever God wanted to do, wherever God wanted to do it. But if you wanted to encounter God, the temple was the place to do it. The raw presence of God in the original language, the Shekinah glory that existed in the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go in only once a year. This was the place. There was no other place for a personal encounter with God. And secondly, the temple was the place where we see a sacrifice for sin that God had set up in the reality that blood is the payment for sin, God had set up a system in order to restore relationship with his people. And the restoration of that relationship took place here at the temple. Originally the tabernacle in the wilderness for the Israelites, now at the temple in Jerusalem. Blood had to be shed for the problem of sin and God had set up a system and a structure whereby the priest could take an animal, go through the religious practices in order to make appropriate atonement for sin. The temple is the place where we see a personal encounter with God and the place where we see sacrifice for sin. The temple is where we see that God is both personal but also holy that he is incredibly personal, that he desires a relationship with his people, but also that he is holy and righteous and cannot be approached with no thought. And so when we read in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, it is not a throwaway statement. It's not just another date on the calendar. The Passover was a key date in the calendar of any devout Jewish person and family. The festival was built around everything that God had done. It was built around remembering the story of the Exodus and specifically how God had passed over the people of Israel, allowing them to be set free from the land of Egypt, to go into the wilderness, to go to the promised land. All of what Passover was about was to remember what God had done, the redemption of the people of Israel and their exodus from slavery in Egypt. And so every Jew, every year, needed to travel to the temple from wherever they were, because over the course of the year, sins would occur, breakdown of relationships, all these different things. And if the the temple was the place where that was dealt with, 
that every Jewish person, every Jewish family needed to travel back year after year because that was the practice. They needed to do business with God. They needed to come back to be restored into relationship with God because they may have sacrificed an animal once, but then they sin again. Something goes wrong again. They start to fall into idol worship again. Something goes wrong. And so every year, the Passover was about Jewish people coming back to the temple and saying, okay, we need a reset. We need a reset once again. And so all of them would come and they would bring their sacrifice to the temple, the place where the priest could help people atone for their sin. There was feasts, everything that had deep meaning and remembrance, what they ate what they drank, how they ate it, how they drank it, the words they said and the songs they sang. It sets the table for the Day of Atonement, the one day a year where the high priest, the key person, would enter into the very center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and would atone for the sins of all of the people, the physical presence of God himself that had the risk of killing that high priest if he did not go in in the proper way. And so this was an incredibly important date and people came from every direction and filled up the city of Jerusalem. If you think Christmas decorations are out in stores way too early, you don't know what Passover was like for the Jewish people. Historians estimate the population of Jerusalem jumped from about 25,000 people to around 1.5 to 2 million people over the Passover festival. It's only a city that was about 30 acres wide and millions of people came. There was over a month of preparation. Personally, everyone all over the place gets their family ready, gets the bags packed, gets ready to go, but also corporate. Every year the roads would be repaired because they knew people would be coming for the Passover festival. It, it reminds me a little bit, and many of you will have lived here during this time, is when we had the Olympics here uh, in Vancouver, not just down the road from us uh, in 2010. And to date myself a little bit here, in 2010, I was in the middle of high school. And I remember being so excited about the Olympics. And I didn't know this at the time, but the Olympics that took place here, there was $1.84 billion spent in the city of Vancouver, in the province of BC, to just get the city ready. Estimates say about 45,000 jobs were created. Not just the athletes who came, but people who came in to sell things, to do things, to, to create businesses around. Uh, it's estimated that about one half to three quarters of a million people poured in to the city of Vancouver. Um, some photos for you guys to see. And if you're still coming out of um, the reality of COVID, these might be a little overwhelming. That's Granville Street during the Olympics. Every introvert listening to this is feeling really stressed out right now. Um, you go to the next one, you just see these waves and crowds of people. This is places I now walk around, I sip my coffee, I cross the street, all these kind of things. There's one more to show you. That's Whistler. And so even out, outside the city, even Whistler, right? You go out, oh, it's beautiful, nature, quiet. There's nothing quiet about that. It was incredibly crowded and incredibly packed. And I remember being in grade 10 and desperately wanting to come from Kamloops to see the Olympics, only a few hours away. And I remember having a conversation um, with my dad because I had heard a rumor that there was a zip line that went down the middle of the city. And so in my mind, I had this dream. I could see Sidney Crosby 
and I could go on a zip line. What Canadian kid wouldn't dream of something like that? But my dad's response was clear. I'm not going. It is way too crowded. There's too many people. It's too packed. It's overwhelming. Depending on your personality, you might love a crowd like that, but most of us don't want to be packed in that tight. It's stressful. It's overwhelming. If you've ever been in a a situation like that or at a concert or whatever it might be, you know the kind of tension and anxiety that can occur in those places. And Jesus and his disciples, they would have experienced the same thing. Just like every other Jewish person as they headed towards the city from Cana where the wedding was, which is about an equivalent distance of Chilliwack to Vancouver. And if you think about the traffic from Chilliwack to Vancouver, the closer you get, the more traffic there is. And they didn't have cars, but you think about the roads with people and their carts and their families. And as they went more and more, closer and closer, there would have been more people. The roads would have got a little more packed. More people from more places, everyone, all roads lead to Jerusalem. And as they headed into the city, 30 acres in size, thousands and thousands of people, the crowds would have gotten bigger and bigger and packed tighter and tighter all as they headed toward the temple because that's what they're there to do. Everyone trying to get to the same place funneled through the streets. And when they finally arrive at the temple, John tells us, Jesus sees a sort of makeshift marketplace. They, they finally get into the temple and Jesus looks around at this place and he sees this, this sort of market, this commerce, these people buying, selling, It's become a bit of a market. Why? Well, because wherever there's people, there tends to be people who want to make money off those people. See, the sacrificial system required animal sacrifice, right? But if you're traveling from 100 kilometers away, you probably don't have a truck and trailer. So it's hard to bring your cattle. It's hard to bring your sheep that way. And so what ended up happening is since people were coming from all over, these people set up a business. Well, I've got a cattle, I've got a sheep, I've got a dove. Just, just travel to town. Buy it once you get here. You don't need to bring it. That's too tough. Just come and purchase it here. But here's the deal. You're in Jerusalem. There's all sorts of different currencies. There's all sorts of different kingdoms and rulers all over the place. You're coming from all over. And, and so not only do you have people um, selling animals for sacrifices, you also have uh, what's called money changers. People who were there to say, okay, you didn't bring the right currency. You don't have a shekel, which is what we're using in the temple area. But, but you can actually bring your, your coins, whatever you have. You can bring them to me, and for a small fee, I'll exchange them. I'll exchange them, and you can have the right stuff. And so people would go in, and then you'd have to exchange your currency. And once you've exchanged your currency, you head in, and you buy your animal, and then you head into the temple, and you do your business with God. You do what you came there to do. This business had popped up, and and all these things are happening. And it's upon seeing this business, it's upon seeing this marketplace that Jesus erupts. He's got a whip in his hand like Indiana Jones. The Bible tells us that Jesus is chasing people out of the temple. He's flipping tables over. Sheep and cattle are running all over the place. And when he arrives at those selling doves, we finally get to the point. Why is Jesus so angry? What does he yell at them? Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So that's what has Jesus so angry. 
Jesus isn't just irritated by crowds. He's not trying to make a scene to make himself the center of attention. He is specifically upset about what the temple has become instead of what it was created to be. In other accounts of a similar story, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus says the temple was made to be a house of prayer for all nations. But even still, this outburst seems a little unfair. See, the money changers and the sellers, they may have been a little bit corrupt. They may have been profiting off people's religious practice, but they were still needed. They were still essential. People needed to get the shekels. People needed to have animals. They were there to go through the festival and the process of Passover. They were there at the temple to sacrifice animals for their sins that they could be made right with God. These people were providing a service that in some sense was needed. They were, though potentially abusing it, a normalized and accepted practice in Jewish culture in order to follow their customs and do their religious duty on a yearly basis. So it may not be the way Jesus envisioned the temple. It may not be the way he likes it, but this is the reality. There's more people than there used to be. We've moved out. We're not a a small community of people in the woods, in the wilderness anymore. We're a nation and we're spread out. And so we actually need these systems in order to make that work. Why is Jesus getting so mad? This is just the way that it has to be. Well, here's why Jesus is getting so angry. Because of the money changers and sellers, they weren't near the temple. They weren't outside the temple doing what needed to be done in order for people to function. They were in the temple. That's what has Jesus so angry. The place that was meant to be reserved. The place that was built for people to encounter the living God, experience his power, and sacrifice for their sins. The place where God's love was most tangibly present had devolved into a marketplace of religious practice. The prophet Isaiah describes how God feels about this kind of sacrifice in religion. God's speaking in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? What is God saying? You've missed the point. Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons completely misses the point. The temple was meant to be a place of profound spirituality and reality of where people could connect with God. And what did it become? A place of tired and busy religious ritual with a decent chance for people to make a dollar. It had become simply religious ritual. Religious ritual had replaced spiritual reality. What may have genuinely started as an honest attempt to simplify things as the nation of Israel grew and needed more formalized ways of walking through the festival of Passover, what what made its way inside the temple, what may have started as an okay thing outside the temple had worked its way and was now in a place it should not have been in. The most profound and important location of the Hebrew people had become a religious Walmart a quick place to grab what you needed, to visit once a year, to do the thing you're supposed to do if you're a good Jewish person. And the reason Jesus gets so angry because he says you can't have this in here. This doesn't belong in here. 
This is a place of profound spirituality. One pastor makes the illustration, imagine we took a busy marketplace. The, the one I always think of, Ikea on a Saturday, which some of you panic and do not like the sound of that. Some of you think that sounds amazing. I can't handle Ikea. That lower floor, everything's packed, everything's tight. There's people all over the place. It's stress. You can't turn your cart around. It is stressful. Uh, imagine if we took that all the goods, all the services, all the employees helping people find things, and we put it right here in our sanctuary. And we set up stuff, and we had people selling things, and the noise, and the movement, and everything's going on. We, we built this all in, and then we tried to hold a worship service. We tried to worship together. We tried to hear the word preached. We tried to pray together. It would be chaos. It would be chaos because you can't merge those two things. What can you do? You can get in, you can get out, and you can do your business. And that's what ended up happening with the temple. What Jesus is saying here is he wants spiritual reality. He doesn't just want religious practice where people show up, do the thing they're supposed to do because they're good Jewish people, and leave. He wants a spiritual reality where people can encounter God. Going through the motions does not cut it to have a profound and life-giving relationship with God. To put it or ask the question this way for each one of us, do you pray or do you say your prayers? Do you find yourself transformed by sharing your life with other people who follow Jesus and engaging in the best and the worst parts of life together with them? Or do you show up to community group for two hours a week and fake it? Does what Jesus is doing in your life overflow in a form of joy that you can't help but tell other people what God is like and what he has done for you? Or do you do evangelism? Do you give generously because God has provided for your needs and you realize that everything that you have is a gift and you brought nothing to the table and God's given you everything? Or do you tithe because it's what good Christians do? What are your motivations? See, I wonder how many of our lives have become like the temple that Jesus found that day. They're really busy. They're really full. There's lots going on. And yeah, there's some religious practice in there. We're doing the right things. We're, we're doing the things we're supposed to be doing. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's too full. It's too busy. It's too chaotic. We're not encountering the reality of God. But everything's okay. Because we've got some religious practice shoehorned in there. My, my social media says that I'm a Christian. Sometimes I share some Christian stuff on my social media. Uh, uh, sometimes I, you know, tell people that I go to church. I, I try to make it to church as often as I can. I joined a community group. I don't show up all the time, but, but technically I'm in one. And when I do show up, I don't really engage, but, but I'm there, I attend, I do the thing that I'm supposed to do as a Christian. We do our best to be a good Christian, but we end up like this temple filled with religious activity, filled with stuff that might look a little bit like what God wants for us, but completely missing the point, completely missing what God actually has on offer. And we find ourselves just like those who Jesus called out in Matthew 23, when he says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones, the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Your faith might look beautiful on the outside. 
your religious practice might be busy and full. You might be able to point to a million things that you do that make you a Christian, but the question is not what you do. The question is, have you encountered God? Have you encountered the risen Christ? When I was in my early 20s, I hit a point. I had been working on my master's. I wanted to do ministry. I was married for a couple of years, and I hit a point where I remember feeling a little bit stuck. And there was no glaring sin in my life. There was no big crisis. There was no thing that was the next thing to do. I'd learned and grown in my faith. I had a good mentor. I attended church. I felt like I was in a healthy place and in giving and all these things. And I remember kind of sitting there and wondering, what, what do I do for the next 50 years? Like, is following Jesus for the next 50, 60, 70 years of my life just sitting here and trying not to mess it up? Trying my best not to sin, but really just looking like everyone else in the world, chasing after the same things, chasing after the same idols, waiting around for Jesus to come back and hoping I don't mess it up in the meantime? And I wonder how many of us have hit a wall like that in our faith. Like maybe you're sitting here right now and you're just like, I, I mean, I do the stuff, I'm a Christian, but it's not really changing anything in me. Here's what Dallas Willard writes in his book, Renovation of the Heart, about what it truly means to follow Jesus. He says, the revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart or spirit. It did not and does not proceed by means of the formation of social institutions and laws, those outer forms of our existence, intending that these would then impose a good order of life upon people who come under their power. That is to say, that is to say, it is not about, we, we just need to get all the outside stuff right. Because as long as we do this stuff, our interior worlds, all, our souls, all those things will just fall into place. As long as we look like we're good Christians, as long as we act like we're good Christians, as long as we don't confess our sin, nobody knows what's really going on, everything's going to fall into place. But he carries on, he writes this, rather, Jesus's is a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God and Christ and to one another. It is one that changes their ideas, their beliefs, their feelings and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relationships. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their soul. Has your encounter with God penetrated to the deepest layers of your soul? Or are you just trying to do the right stuff? Because Jesus' heart for you is that you would encounter God. Jesus' anger in this story isn't at people themselves. It's at the way in which a formalized way of doing religion has worked its way into the minds and hearts so much so that people have completely lost the point. They've completely lost the core. This isn't selfish anger. This is not a temper tantrum. This is Jesus's love. Here's how one commentator, R. Kent Hughes, describes it. He says, love presupposes hate. What? That doesn't make sense. Love, hate, they're opposite. How, how could they mean the same thing? Well, he continues. He says, love for the poor and oppressed also brings about a hatred for the conditions and the wrongs which have brought it about. Jesus loves you enough to be angry at those things which are holding you back from a relationship with him. 
And so just like in the temple, when we invite Jesus into our lives, he starts to chip away. He starts to move around the things we've set up in the wrong place in our life. He begins to flip over tables that we've screwed down into the ground to try and keep ourselves safe. He casts out those things which cause the corruption and the decay of our souls. And you know what? It's really uncomfortable. It's extremely uncomfortable. But here's an unfortunate but true principle that each one of us needs to accept if we are going to grow as followers of Jesus. Spiritual growth, real spiritual growth, is extremely uncomfortable. You think about this, someone comes over for dinner, if, if someone came over to your house, and this is essentially what Jesus is doing in the temple, someone comes over and they come in and they go, mm, I don't like the way your couch is, it's not where it should be, mm, you have your kitchen set up in the wrong way, I'm going to move your plates over here and your cutlery, that's in the wrong drawer, that should not be there, that kind of thing, and what would we do if someone came over to our house and did that? We'd say, whoa, 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 who do you think you are? This is my house. Is this your house? Because you can't do this unless this is your house. And this is what Jesus is doing with our spiritual reality. This is what he's doing when he walks into the temple. When he starts moving stuff around, he's saying, this is my place. This is my father's house. And you've set it up wrong. This is not the way that it's meant to be. And some of us, some of us are desperate for that. Some of us feel like our lives are such a mess. They're so broken. There's so much going on that we invite Jesus in and we say, please move some stuff around. Like those shows with the hoarders where someone comes in and helps them. They're admitting, I need help. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Please, Jesus, help me. Please come rearrange everything in my life because I know it's broken. But some of us, we like the way our stuff is set up. Now, we've got some stuff that probably isn't where it should be, but we're pretty okay with how we have things set up. And, and so when Jesus comes into our lives and he starts rearranging things or, or telling us to get rid of things, it makes us a little bit frustrated. It makes us a little bit angry. See, that's why Jesus bothers religious people. Because when we think we have it all together, when we think everything's okay, then when Jesus comes in and starts changing things, it's frustrating. That's why those who were poor and oppressed and hurting were so excited when Jesus showed up because they were ready and welcoming him to do the work that he could do in their lives. And when the people see Jesus moving around the temple like he owns the place, they want to know the same thing we do. Who do you think you are? Verse 18 of John 2, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us to do these things? As in, what do you think you're doing? You need to give us some evidence that you have the right to come in here and do this because we've got a system set up. We know what we're doing. You don't get to come in here and tell us we're doing it wrong. And see, this is not the first or the last time that people demand a sign of Jesus. Show us a miracle. Show us your power. Prove you are who you say you are because you can't come in and act like you were the king around here unless you can back it up. Show us the evidence. Show us the power. We've heard you're a good guy. We've heard you're a good teacher. We've heard you can do some neat magic tricks and heal people and all that kind of stuff. But show us something. Show us something if you think you're going to come in here and act like you own the place. See, now, most commentators agree that this account of the temple cleansing is the first of two, actually. That this one happens, and then later on, the other synoptic gospels uh, uh, reference a different cleansing that leads into Jesus' holy week. 
that ultimately his second cleansing of the temple that occurs in the other gospel accounts is the direct correlation, the direct event that leads to the crucifixion and death of Christ. And the second time Jesus comes to cleanse the temple, he comes on what we know as Palm Sunday. And the crowd celebrates and welcomes him as king of the Jews, where they cry out Hosanna as in save us. They worship him as king, which is all well and good. They're happy to have Jesus as a political king, as a king who leads them against their enemies, as a king who leads them in this way. But, but when he shows up in the temple, whoa, 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 that's personal. That's private. You don't get to go there because Jesus isn't content to be king in just a political sense. In fact, Jesus isn't even all that interested in being king in a political sense. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of our hearts where Jesus breaks into our lives. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple, the place of spiritual reality because that's where Jesus wants to be king. But we wanna keep Jesus on the outside. Jesus, be the king of this, but don't touch that. Jesus, be the king over my finances, provide for me. Jesus, be the king over my issues and, and deal with those things, but, but don't tell me to change. Don't move the stuff out of my house that I like. Be the king of this, be the king of that, but don't challenge me. Don't push me. Don't ask me to give things up. Does your experience of God ever make you uncomfortable? Because what Jesus is saying as he walks into the temple and gets angry in this place is that if your faith, if your relationship with God is just comfortable all the time, then you're probably not encountering the real God. How do you know Jesus is the Lord of your life? He starts moving stuff around. He starts moving the things that we've put at the center around, those things that the money changers and the sellers, they're not necessarily bad, but they've gone too far in, too close to the center. They have seeped their way into a place where they shouldn't be. And when Jesus comes, he says, no, this can't be in here. Why? Well, as one pastor puts it, Timothy Keller, he says, nothing and no one but God can bear the burden of being God. Your career cannot bear that burden. You cannot find purpose and meaning for your life in a job. An experience can't give you that. The most epic vacation, COVID's over, I'll go somewhere amazing and then my life will be okay. It can't bear the burden of being God. Here's an important one for each one of us. A relationship can't. Whether that's a spouse or your kids or your family or your friends, there are people who love you and care for you and they are incredible people to have relationships with, but they are really lousy saviors. Do not put the people you have relationships with on the pedestal. This is what St. Augustine called disordered love. Because all sin flows not from hate, but from love. The problem is it's a disordered love. It's not a lack of love, but love in the wrong order. David Brooks, writing on this exact thing, says this. He says, we don't become better by getting more information. We become better because we acquire better loves. We don't become what we know. Education Learning, or I would say spiritual growth, is a process of love formation. But how do we know? How could we trust that Jesus is the one who should sit at the center? That, that he can come in and move around the furniture of our lives? How can we invite him and say, do what you will, I trust you? 
Well, he answers it right here in this passage when they ask him to show a sign. Jesus answered them. He says, destroy this temple. Destroy it. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, what? It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you plan to raise it up in three days? But, but Jesus, he had, he had gone over their heads. It says in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, in your Bible, depending on what translation or what copy edition of the Bible you might be reading, this story, this account is often called the cleansing of the temple or the clearing of the temple. But I love how D.A. Carson titles this story in his commentary on John chapter 2. He says, this story is where Jesus replaces the temple. See, the temple was the place where you had the presence of God. The temple was the place where the sacrifice of sins was made, but Jesus arrives at the temple and proclaims this is now obsolete, tear it down. It's not necessary anymore. It's not needed. Why? Because Jesus himself is the presence of God and the sacrifice for sin. The temple which served as the place where someone could encounter God and the place where sin was sacrificed for. Jesus shows up and says, it is me. I am your encounter with God and I will be your sacrifice for sin. And in that moment, they didn't understand. How could they? This was just a man. Maybe a special man, maybe even a prophet from God. But, but listen to this last line. I love this. I love that John gives us this picture. And John writes, When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. His disciples remembered and they go, oh, that's what he meant. This is what Jesus was talking about. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It is only in light of the resurrection that they realized, and we can too, that in Jesus, we can fully encounter God and have our sins totally paid for. That Jesus is the true and greater temple. That Jesus is the true and great over Passover lamb. That Jesus is the true and greater way in which we are restored to relationship with God. The Passover feast, the bread and the cup, they point to him. The temple sacrifice, that Jesus is our lamb. The rituals are a picture and work of Jesus. It's all just a signpost pointing to Jesus. And how do we know? Because when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens at the temple, the center, past all the money changers, past all the people selling, past all the religious practice, past all the formal actions saying this is what it means to be religious. The veil that was a wall between man and God was torn. The veil was torn. Anyone now has access to engage and encounter God because Jesus himself was the sacrifice for our sins. And it's Peter one of Jesus' disciples who would have been there that day to watch Jesus flip these tables and say this temple is no longer needed, who would later write this about Jesus. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves are living stones, a spiritual house, and you are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For as it stands in Scripture, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple. 
Through the power and beauty of Christ's death and resurrection, he has become the cornerstone in our temple. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I are invited in. We're invited not just to look at what Jesus is doing, not just to go through formal religious practice, but to become living stones built into the temple. What Paul describes us as temples of the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you are a living stone and a part of the temple of which Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter continues, he says, but you, you, you and me as believers and followers of Jesus, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light because Jesus has come. Because Jesus has lived and because just as he said, he allowed his body to be given. He allowed his body, the temple, to be given and raised back up in three days. And because of that, you and I are called out of darkness and into light. The invitation of John is to come and see there's a new temple. Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just a good person. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the new temple. He's the way by which we encounter the presence of God and the sacrifice for our sins. And so you and I, we can move the money changers and the tables and the formalized religion out of the temple. We can put Jesus at the center. We can take the pressure off our relationships. We can take the pressure off doing the right Christian stuff. We put Jesus at the center and we can receive his invitation out of darkness and into marvelous light. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we honor and celebrate you as the cornerstone as the new temple, as the one to who all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the feasts, all the practices, the one to whom they all pointed to. And we celebrate just as the disciples did, Lord Jesus, that we now understand what you meant, that you gave your body, that you gave your blood, that you became the sacrifice for our sins that we might be restored in relationship to you. We thank you, God, that the veil has been torn and that we've been invited to encounter God. Lord Jesus, help us to put aside every weight and sin that hinders us and run to you to fix our eyes on you. Help us to not place anything in our lives, in our temples that need not be there. Lord Jesus, we invite you to do the uncomfortable work of spiritual growth in us. And Jesus, we celebrate and honor you as the one who died for us, who was raised again, and who encounters us and calls us out of darkness and into light. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us at Ridge Church today. As you go, I wanna leave you with these words from Hebrews chapter nine about how Jesus himself has become our new temple, our new high priest, and our new tabernacle. Here's what it says, but Christ has appeared 
as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He, that is Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify and purify the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Jesus himself has shed his blood and become the new temple that you and I have been called into new light. So go in that grace. We love you. We're praying for you. We can't wait to see you next week.